Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It's a post-week three, pre-week four Peter King Podcast, and I'm joined by my friend Miles Simmons from NBC Sports, and, and we're going to have an interesting guest, Puka Nakua, the sensational young receiver for the Los Angeles Rams. After three weeks, he leads the NFL with 30 receptions, which... When you're the 177th pick in the NFL draft, the last pick in round five, you wouldn't figure you'd be leading the NFL in receptions after, you know, three weeks of the season entering the month of October. But here we are. So we'll be joined by Puka Naku in a few minutes. Um, we're also going to discuss some very interesting events in the NFL and not just good ones. But Miles, I'm afraid at some point in this podcast, we're going to have to talk about the Denver Broncos and Chicago Bears, who, by the way, will have a playoff preview Sunday at Soldier Field um, mm. that I'm sure everyone just can't wait to see. Good morning, Miles Simmons. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm doing well, Peter. Probably not as well as Travis Kelsey is, you know, considering everything that's been going on with him this weekend. Uh, but I, I did enjoy the Taylor Swift lyric references in your column. I thought that that was very funny. And I, I didn't think it was too much even before you cried uncle on yourself. <laughs> well, I think... One of my favorite ones from the column from Football Morning in America this week is when I discussed how the Bears had been full of optimism this offseason. They went out and got a franchise receiver. They were all optimistic about Justin Fields. And I said, now it has all come crashing down. And it looks like a replay of 2022 when they were awful and they earned the first pick in the NFL draft. And as I said about this year, looking forward to the first pick of next year's NFL draft, I remember it all too well. So <laughs> anyway, uh, Miles, let's not start on a lousy note. Let's start on a bright and cheery note because I thought I was totally into the Monday night games, even though I go into Monday you know, fairly exhausted because I have a very long Sunday night, but I managed to stay awake and I thought that both of these games were very interesting games. And let's take the second one first. The Cincinnati Bengals, everybody is going to say after a game like that, geez, what's wrong with them? 
19 to 16. Burrow just doesn't look like himself. Well, no crap, Sherlock. He's not himself. <laughs> and, you know, so at this point, you have to you have to just assume that the Bengals, in order to win this year, in order to contend to win this division, in order to be a troublesome team come January and February, they're going to have to play 1916 games, which was the exact score from uh, Monday night. And Miles, I want to give you just one statistic from the first three weeks of this season. The Cincinnati Bengals, one of the high-powered explosive offenses in football over the last three years, great offensive team, have now had 32 offensive drives this season and scored three touchdowns. Now, I will just say that that is not going to be good enough. But it may have to be good enough, and the Bengals may have to play games in the teens this year to win. Your thoughts? Well, the, the, the issue is that Joe Burrow is not healthy, right? And, and I think that we all understand yeah. that what we're watching when we see Joe Burrow is not the Joe Burrow that we've come to expect. I mean, I, I, I was texting some folks who were like, man, are, they, are the Bengals doing a disservice by playing Joe Burrow in this game? Because he, he clearly cannot move the way he's used to moving. He clearly cannot plant and throw the ball down the field the way he's used to planting and throwing the ball down the field. And, I mean, look, I, I have so much respect for Heaton Morris and everything he does with that Los Angeles Rams defense. But right now, they're playing with Aaron Donald and 10 Aaron Donets. I mean, I, I don't really know, you know <laughs> a lot of what they're doing on defense. Like, th- that's what the personnel is. And, like, they, yeah, they've got some guys that – can get better and that can grow and that's what they're trying to do but at the same time when you can't get the ball to jamar chase down the field because which is what we're used to seeing right when you can't get the ball to t higgins down the field and for whatever reason t higgins needs a hand transplant i mean these are the kinds of things that now the the Bengals are going to have to get themselves through so like i I think you're right that right now they've got to gut through games. That's what they were obviously able to do um, against the Rams on, on Monday night. That's good for them. But if there's a team that can really get after Joe Burrow with a consistent pass rush, like we saw with Cleveland in week one, and like I think Tennessee may be able to do coming up in week four, that's going to be a real issue for them because Burrow just cannot really move, doesn't have that mobility to stay alive in the pocket, keep things going, and then find Jamar Chase or, or Boyd or Higgins down the field right now. I mean, look, I applaud Zach Taylor, Brian Callahan, coaching staff there uh, for putting together a game plan in which they try to get Jamar Chase. There's one play that this was called a forward pass, but it basically was a sideways or almost backward lateral where he caught the ball four yards behind the line of scrimmage over on the left sideline and he just got swarmed and you say well geez why would you do that well they're trying to get the ball to jamar chase in space and you know sometimes it's going to work sometimes it's not going to work and the interesting thing about the way the bengals are going to have to play this year is that this team's had a good defense, and I thought Lou Anarumo last year got absolutely short-shrifted uh, in the head coaching searches around the league. 
And I thought he had a good chance of getting the Arizona job. Obviously didn't get it. And I think Lou Anarumo is one of the smartest defensive coaches in football. And Mm -hmm. he's going to have to be great this year for the Bengals to have a chance. And look, on the other side, you know, the bottom line is if Matthew Stafford had a B-plus game last night, the Rams would have won that game. And he made two, two or three really poor decisions in this game, I thought, made a couple of bad throws. Um, and, and look, but that's, that's the life of a quarterback. It, it really is. I'm not killing Stafford. He, he missed a couple of receivers last night, made a couple of bad throws, and that's what happens in the NFL to good and very good quarterbacks. So, look, I still think the Rams are going to be okay. They are a feisty, fighting team. And, and Miles, you know, the one little leftover thing from my interview you'll hear coming up with Puka Nakua, I just get this feeling, and I wrote this in my column on Monday, that, you know, I think we all still think of Cooper Cup as a guy who's a receiver in his prime. But I'm not sure we should think of him in that way. He's 30 years old. He's been hurt a lot recently. He's got this weird hamstring injury. Who knows what's going to happen with him and all that. But if you look at Puka Nakua, he is so incredibly similar to Cooper Cup. Both mm-hmm. 6'2", both around 207, both down-the-line draft choices, and both play the game in an extremely feisty way. Uh, they're both four five forty guys, and but they are heck to cover off the line of scrimmage. Really instinctive receivers both. I kind of think that Puka Nakua is going to succeed Cooper Cup. Now, maybe Cup gives him a couple more years in and out of the lineup and all that, and Puka uh, or Cup basically move around the formation. But with Tutu Atwell coming on this year, I think he's really been a revelation. With Atwell coming on this year, I think that if Cooper Cup comes back this year, they'll have a really good threesome, but long-term... I think Puka Nakua is going to be the heir to Cooper Cup and maybe soon. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you, Peter. I mean, I, I don't know if you ever you, know, you watch a show and then they recast an actor and then you hear like a voiceover yeah. that says the role of X is now being played yes, by yeah. Like that's kind of the, the thing that I have imagined with the Rams. It's like the role of Cooper Cup is now being played by Puka Nakua because that's kind of the way that things have functioned with the Rams and especially the way that Matthew Stafford has targeted those guys. But I, I agree with you. I think the Rams are a feisty bunch. I think that they're scrappy. You know, they're, they're going to be in games most of the time. And more often than not, I think they're good, good enough to beat bad teams, especially because I think their coaching is really good. But as we saw last night, if the offensive line has injuries, if things are not exactly right with that OL, and you got to send five seven out there to play left tackle, man. Th- it's going to be a long day for Matthew Stafford because that guy was getting abused last yeah. night. And I don't know. I don't know what the the plan was. If the Rams didn't have that much confidence that they could run the ball with him, I, I don't know what was going on. Well, you got to give that guy more help if he's going against nine one off the Bengals and he's just he's almost functioning as a turnstile. Like it just 
it what that was more of the thing that I thought was giving Matthew Stafford problems because he wasn't being able to trust his protection. And then when you can't trust your protection, the clock in your head starts speeding up. And that's not something that we saw over the first two weeks with the Rams, especially not in Seattle when they right. when they went up there and beat them at Lumen Field. So I, I that's the one thing where I'm, I'm going to be concerned if the Rams can't protect Matthew Stafford. That That's going to be a big problem. Philadelphia 25, Tampa Bay 11. Didn't really seem that close. Uh, I think we yeah, all figured that Tampa Bay was going to fall to earth at some point. Um, uh, Tampa Bay's got a very, very good defense. I think that is a suspect offense. And and look, congratulations to, to Baker Mayfield for having a very good first two games. But I just don't see him being the quarterback long-term it's going to be a you know sort of a consistent winner uh, for Tampa. We'll see. Um, the one thing that really impressed me last night, and this is going to sound odd, but so Jalen Hurts was not himself last night. As they said on the broadcast, he appeared to be ill uh, before the game, and uh, so I don't think physically he was at his best. But I'll tell you what really, really impressed me about uh, about Jalen Hurts. I'm going to take you into uh, the scoring drive, the touchdown drive, um, midway through the second quarter, where there were two throws that Jalen Hurts made in the span of four plays that were just absolutely beautiful. Okay, so... And and they were both to uh, Zacchaeus, the receiver they picked up from Atlanta in the offseason. On the first one, he is about to get sandwiched by two Tampa pass rushers. Waits, 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 waits. And then he throws a perfect throw. 27 yards in the air, down the left sidelines to uh, a wide open receiver. Just, I said, that is a beautiful NFL throw. And then three plays later, Greg Gaines of the Bucks is has him in his sights. He is a millisecond. Jalen Hurts is a millisecond from getting creamed by a 310-pound tackle. And he waits, 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 and releases the ball at the last possible second. Again, hits Zacchaeus this time for a long touchdown pass. And I just said to myself, all you have to do to know that Jalen Hurts is a great football player is to watch those two plays. I was so Mm -hmm. impressed with him on a night where he didn't have his best stuff. And look, the Eagles have been stopping and starting and, and stalling a few times in the first three weeks. And I think it's fair to say is this team as good as we thought it was? And I definitely think it is, and it will be the rest of the way. I think it's going to be a Philly-San Francisco battle to the end in the NFC. We'll see. Dallas still is going to have something to say about it. Detroit might. Other teams, obviously. But I really like what I saw on a night when he wasn't feeling great, when he didn't have his best. He had enough to make big plays 
uh, to help Philadelphia win that game. What, what I've loved about Philadelphia the last couple of years, Peter, is that they are so adaptable. Right? If one thing is yeah. not necessarily working or if, if a team on offense, if, if a team is like, okay, we're not going to let you run the ball today, then usually Jalen Hurts is able to say, all right, well, I got Devontae Smith. I've got A.J. Brown. I've got Dallas Goddard. I've got enough guys where that's fine. Like We'll be able to adapt and adjust, and we'll be able to pass the ball down the field. Now, their passing game has not been as strong as that as I would have thought coming into this year based on you know the fact that you've got a lot of the similar personnel. Brian Johnson moving up from QB's coach to then offensive coordinator. Yes, it's a different play caller, but he's still well-versed in the system and all that. And I, I thought that the continuity there would be able to help them a little bit more than it has so far. But I think the way that they run the ball – and the way that they can so obviously control the game through that, and it's exactly what they did last year. You know, oh, man, we don't want you to pass it today. All right, well, we'll throw it. You know, we've got one of the best offensive lines, if not the best offensive line in football. We'll part the Red Sea for Swift and have him run behind Kelsey. And, oh, my goodness, look at what we're doing here. So, like, that, that's one of the things that I love about Philadelphia, and it's why I think that they are going to continue to be uh, one of the top two teams in the NFC, or one of the top three, if I were going to go by my preseason predictions, but why should we do that? So, I, I just – there's a really good vibe, I think, coming out of Philadelphia, because even when you don't have your best stuff, you know, even when you don't have your, your proverbial fastball and you can still control the game and win as they did. I think that that's really good news for the Eagles going forward. Look, I think the most interesting thing about what we've seen in the Eagles, the first three weeks is that Jalen hurts has been good. Hasn't been great, yeah. but mm-hmm. What you've seen in this running game is greatness. And Mm -hmm. for anybody who wondered after they let Miles Sanders walk, and we've talked about that on this podcast, anybody who who was concerned about him, I mean, first three games of the season, 557 rushing yards. I mean, you just need to think about that for a second. That is borderline. You're almost getting 200 rushing yards a game. That's number one. And to average 4.9 a carry when everybody knows that it's coming. Uh, And they struggled against the Patriots running it first week. They killed the Vikings with it. And they ran it consistently, successfully against Tampa. So, look, this is a team that if Jalen Hurts is playing B-minus football, is still going to be able to win and win decisively because of an excellent running game. Miles, I don't think anybody could think any different after watching week three than to say that the best team in football right now is the Miami Dolphins. And to put up 70 when, first of all, you're already without two of your top four running backs, um, you know, injured before the season, Jeff Wilson most notably. Um, And on Sunday, they're without Jalen Waddell there number two weapon next to Tyreek Hill. And so you're already missing something. Your your pass-catching tight end is a guy who nobody's ever heard of. Um, I think Dalton Smythe. His last name is Smythe. I always forget his first name. Uh, and you're, you're basically asking a bunch of skill players like 
River Craycraft and Alec Ingold and and Dalton Smythe and whatever. I, you're asking these guys to pick up a lot of slack, and they did in part because of uh, you know what Raheem Mostert and Devin Achan did in this game. Just a very quick note. So I wrote the lead to my column about the Dolphins, a very short lead, but I wrote the lead to my column about the Dolphins, and the lead of the column was about how Devin Achan actually pronounces his last name Achan. And I had heard uh, from the Dolphins and also online when I looked it up, I knew I was going to talk to him after the game, that uh, he seemingly pronounced his name Achan. And, uh, but I wasn't positive. So I just asked him after the game, Hey, let's just make sure I got the pronunciation of your name. Correct. I said, a chain. He goes, no, a chan. I said, a chan. He said, a chan. So I wrote that. And all of a sudden the, uh, (laughs) the dolphins have to issue this, uh, clarification on the pronunciation of his name because, Obviously, they called um, uh, Devon, it is, Devon. They called him and he said, yeah, it's Achan. But I I didn't think the pronunciation of a name would get as much attention as it did. But look, this guy's going to be good. He's really fast. Uh, He lasted in the draft way too long. And he's a great example of why NFL teams don't pay running backs. But... Say that, saying all that, you know, Miami right now, to me, I mean, I named Mike McDaniel my coach of the week in my column this week for a very simple reason. After I saw the no-look shovel pass, uh, sort of a weird uh, wide motion that Tyreek Hill goes on, and for all the world to see, Everybody thought at the beginning of that play that Tua Tagovailoa was simply going to pitch it or hand it to Tyreek Hill on his way by because he's staring right at him. And then he pitches it uh, right to A-Chan who runs for a touchdown. And that just says to me, A, how much confidence Mike McDaniel has in his quarterback, first of all, to make a play like that and how imaginative Mike McDaniel is. Look, I don't know if they can stay healthy for the next 14 games and then into the playoffs, but they are a tough, tough, tough team to beat right now, these Miami Dolphins. Yeah, they've been playing really well. And Peter, they've shown it in three different spots, right? They came out here to Los Angeles week one, played a tough game against the Chargers, ended up winning that. Right. You then you go to New England. That's always going to be a tough place to play with no matter what's going on with the, the Patriots. And then they beat them. Right. Then you come home and you don't have Jalen Waddle and you still put up 70 points. I mean, it, it's ridiculous what the Dolphins have been able to do. And they don't have some of their best guys out there on the field. I mean, they don't even have Jalen Ramsey. Right. And that to me, Jalen Ramsey, I thought was going to be, man, that that defense is going to take off. If they have Jalen Ramsey because they got big Fangio and all this and that, that, that. And when they didn't yeah. have, when they're not going to have Jalen Ramsey for so long, I thought, well, that's going to take something away from that defense. But man, I mean, I know that, you know, you're going against the Broncos and the Broncos aren't, well, let's say the 07 Patriots right now, 
But when you're shutting them down as they did, and look, if you get 70 points and you still win by 50 because you gave up 20, like that's that's something. So I just I feel really good about where the Dolphins are in terms of them being a contender. I mean, it, it just looks really obvious right now that they are the best team in football. And yeah, it's easy to say that after week three, but like I said, when you go to three completely different environments and you win in all those different environments, it says a lot about where your team is. So you have to hope that Tua Tungabailoa can stay healthy because if he does, then yeah, the Dolphins are going to be there. They're going to be there all year. This is going to be a really interesting game with Buffalo coming up this week, Peter. Miami Dolphins have scored more points in the second quarter than six teams have scored all season. So there's that. <laughs> Let's just spend a minute talking about the Denver Broncos. And look, we all saw there's another team at play in that game. And I thought one of the most interesting things was after the game, a Denver TV person stuck a camera in in the locker of Garrett Bowles, the left tackle of the, um, you know, of the uh, Denver Broncos. And I'm watching this, and this poor Garrett Bowles looks like and is talking like his dog just died. It, 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 was, it was incredibly sad. And, and so I just started to think to myself, Sean Payton's got a four-hour flight home from Miami to Denver. And Sean Payton spent the time on that flight, I'm sure, stewing and figuring out what are we going to do to turn this around. Now, I don't know what he's going to do to turn this around. But the one thing I immediately thought is that this is a a different breed it, not necessarily an altogether modern coach. He's got a lot of Bill Parcells in him. And I say that because I think one of the things that he has to be thinking is that we have no sacred cows right now. None, zero. And so no matter who you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter what the situation is, I will not be surprised if he starts benching people playing other people because he's got to say to his team, we're trying everything. We are not going down this way. So there's two things about this. Number one, everybody downplayed the acquisition of Jarrett Stidham in free agency in the off season. And I understand why you have Russell Wilson. You're paying him a jillion dollars. I get it. But there's a reason I think, and not just for insurance, why he went and got Jared Stidham. I think he sees some really interesting potential in Stidham. Uh, he threw for 365 yards against the 49ers in his first NFL start last year in Vegas. I would not put it past him. If Russell Wilson struggles and you have all these little code things going on that, you know, you're, you, you know, taking Russell Wilson too long to make the play calls or whatever he said last week about it, that, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're struggling getting plays off or taking too much time. Wouldn't be surprised about that. And then I would not be surprised if Dallas or if Denver rather was a major seller at the trade deadline. 
with who, I don't know. But Sean Payton is here for the long haul, and he's not going to take this lying down. Your thoughts? Well, you know, Peter, you talk about Garrett Bowles, and when you lose by 50, like that's a game that I feel like is more often going to happen in December when it's like, okay, we know what teams are. It's a great right? point. Oh, my great gosh. point. Right? Because you, you know what teams are. You know that there's a really good team. I'll point to this. In 2016, the Atlanta Falcons, who obviously went on to be in the Super Bowl and be up 28-3 in the Super Bowl, were coming to the, to Los Angeles in December, early, early to mid-December, and they're playing the Rams. The Rams were awful, and they end up going up 44 to nothing over the Rams. Right, that was sort of the rock bottom for the 2016 Rams. Then Jeff Fisher was fired, and then Sean McVay comes in, and you know everything becomes different. But that was that kind of game where it's like, man, everybody knows that one team is good, one team is bad. The result is going to be the result. We still got to go out here and play for three hours. You don't usually see a team get like completely dominated like that this early on in the season because I don't know, I, I, things aren't supposed to be that fluid where you're going to lose by 50 in a game. I mean, it's just not, not this early. I mean, it should never happen, but like, especially not this early on in the season. So like that, when you see Garrett Bowles at his locker like that, and he said, man, seven years and it's all been this, it's just losing and losing. And he cusses. It's like, we're in September still. <laughs> like, it's week three. And this is as bad as it is. So Maybe there's a silver lining in that in saying that, okay, the Denver Broncos, they, they, you can't get much worse than it already has, right? So you can only go up from here. And I would assume that with Sean Payton as head coach, it's like you're either going to row this boat with me or get the hell into the water. Get out. Just just go swim to shore because this is not going to happen again. This is not the kind of performance we're going to put out there. We're not going to have you know guys questioning our effort from the film, from what we're seeing, like it's just not going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen with a Sean Payton coached team. So I I was thinking that Jarrett Stidham could potentially become the Broncos quarterback by December. If Russell Wilson struggled, maybe we're going to be into the beginning of November. If things don't improve quickly, because you're right, Peter, they've got to try something. They've got to try everything. You can't have a performance like that where, and I know Russell Wilson doesn't play defense, but like, could, did anybody make a tackle the entire game for the Denver Broncos? I mean, what was yeah. going on? Yeah. It was just, it was so embarrassing. And Sean Payton said it. So they've got a lot to correct, obviously. But yeah, it, it starts with the top. And I think that Sean Payton's going to, he's going to have them ready for something this week with the Chicago Bears coming in. So, you know, not to put any of these guys on blast or put on notice, but who might be attractive to teams <clears throat> come late October when the trading deadline happens, a left tackle like Garrett Bowles, who's in his, um, who's in his seventh year right now, um, a safety like Justin Simmons in his eighth year, um, a wide receiver, Cortland Sutton in his sixth year. The reason that I tell you which year they're all in is that if you're Sean Payton, you're building a team for the long haul. And if you have guys, six, seven, eight year guys, you have to start saying, would we be wiser to take our chances in the draft next year 
than to go ahead in a lost season and uh, use these guys up a little bit more. So who knows how much longer you have with each of them starting next year. So to me, I, I would think that the Broncos, uh, unless they turn it around very quickly, I have a good chance to be sellers at the trading deadline. So let's get you to Puka Nakua. He's, as we sit here right now, after three complete weeks, uh, 30 catches. I mean, what rookie, especially a rookie drafted late in the fifth round, is going to average 10 catches a game? He has become an absolute um, security blanket for Matthew Stafford. And I think the Rams like him because they know that he's going to be a precision route runner, which is essential in Sean McVay's offense. So I caught up with him before the uh, Rams played the Bengals. I had a good conversation with him. And here you go with Puka Nakua of the Los Angeles Rams. Is there such a thing as a traveler, not a Delta? Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So happy to be joined on the podcast this week by Puka Nakua, the record-setting wide receiver of the Los Angeles Rams. And just so that you understand uh, what Puka Nakua has done, first of all, we are recording this before the Monday night game at Cincinnati. So I'm just going to be referring to what happened in the first two weeks of the season. And in the first two weeks of the season, the NFL has been been alive for 104 years. And there's never been a rookie receiver who came in and had double-digit catches for over 100 yards in his first two games. Puka Nakua has uh, had a 10 for 119 yard uh, game in his debut uh, in Seattle. And then uh, he had a 15 catch game for 147 yards in game number two against the 49ers. And um, Puka Nakua, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> okay. Puka, I have to tell you, did you know that you're the only player in NFL history with the first name of Puka? <laughs> no, yeah, I don't think you had to tell me that one. I, I think I that one. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about your nationality? What's your what's your family background? Puka Nakua. Um, so the last name Nakua is actually uh Portuguese, but uh, my mom is full Samoan and my and my dad is Hawaiian, um a little bit of Portuguese and he's got my dad was a good good little mix. He grew up in the big island in Hawaii. Um so a little bit of everything. <laughs> wow. So I I just I'm I'm so curious about so many things about your life, but did you grow up really loving football? Tell me about 
how you grew up, where you grew up. I think Orem, Utah, if I'm not mistaken. But tell me about how you grew up, where you grew up, and how did you get to be a big football fan and big football player? Uh, it really started in, in my home. I, I have, uh, I come from a big family. I have five brothers and one sister. So <laughs> at a very little age, all my older siblings were playing sports, um, involved in football and basketball. Um, so as my earliest memories of me being a tackling dummy in the backyard <laughs> for my older brothers and just getting hit, I had all the pads on my brother. were just running drills. My dad's got us lining up drills in the backyard. And I was just getting hit left and right. So Playing football is something I feel like it's been it's one of the things I've known. I can go back to my earliest memories, and it's been a long it's been along my life journey the whole time. And so I'm blessed to do that. I, I it came from watching my older brothers and my love for the game of football, and from my dad, who's my first football coach. Uh, my older brother Samson was the the starting quarterback for our team. And I played like left tackle. I'm three years younger than my older brother, Samson. So all these guys are a lot bigger than me. Um, I, but I'm playing left tackle. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How did you end up at left tackle? <laughs> You're telling me my dad and older brother were the head coach. They set me up. They're, they're, they're trying to make sure that my older brother, the quarterback, was trying to be protected. But I wouldn't say I did my best job. I wouldn't say I was the best left tackle out there. <laughs> But it, it made it so fun that whether I got pancaked or I actually I did block somebody, I saw my brother in the end zone, and that filled me up with so much excitement and joy. Like the kid, whether he was laying on top of me saying, you stink, and I was like, hey, my brother's in the end zone, so why am I mad? <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start playing wide receiver? Um, not till my, my eighth grade year. Uh, right before going into high school it was my first time kind of playing receiver. I had a little bit of a, a growth spurt and probably got close to around six foot. So I was just getting uh, just taller than a little, than most guys at that age. So I started playing receiver and kind of took off from there. So, and then when you got to high school, were you only a wide receiver? Did you do anything else in high school? Um, I played a little bit of, uh, a little bit of safety and some corner, but uh, mainly, yeah, mainly just receiver, very limited snaps on defense. I like scoring touchdowns uh, when they were throwing me the ball. <laughs> and how about other sports as a kid? Did you play anything else? Uh, always, yeah, football and basketball. Those are kind of the two sports that my family played. So right when we finished football season, right into basketball to keep us in shape and kind of all through the summer. So kind of the summertime where we were super busy of starting football workouts and being ready to like doing travel AAU basketball. So that was like the summer times were the best times, even though we, I know, I, I feel like I don't remember going to outside to play because we were always in some type of basketball tournament, some type of football camp or just doing something. Uh, so yeah, football and basketball. And then I did uh, track in um in high school but just those football and basketball were my main two how did you end up picking washington as your first school out of high school um coach peterson and my receivers coach uh junior adams were kind were my, my main two junior coach adams was uh kind of the big selling point for me when i had visited the university of washington before they had, had a different receivers coach um, and then when um, I went back and they came back to recruit me, Coach Adams was the coach and we really connected really well. And he's coached uh, Cooper Cup. And he's coached a lot of guys, Kendrick Bourne. Uh, he's got a, a long list guy, Cedric Wilson. So if some, somebody I felt like I could trust to help me get to my goals and Coach Peterson was, my mom loved Coach Peterson too. So it's just the icing on the cake. <laughs> and then you transferred to BYU, home state school in 21 and you ended up playing there in 21 and 22. How was it to go back home to play football? Um, it was a 
it was a blast. It was a, a, a dream come true. The circumstances uh, weren't the best. My grandma was diagnosed with uh, ovarian cancer in uh, in February of January uh, or February of 2021 and passed away in September of, of that year as well. So that was uh, kind of the main reason for me being able to be home and transfer back home to be closer to my mom. And uh, my father had passed away when I was a, a young kid in Las Vegas. So family's always been super big to me because of my culture. But um, it, due to the life circumstances, like being close to my family, what the opportunity presented itself. And uh, luckily, it worked out well for me. But then um, I also had the the dream come true, <laughs> literally like a, like a movie. Um, I got to play. Uh, this on the, on the same field as my older brother. My older brother from the University of Utah transferred back to play. Uh, both of us would be close to home, but we had got to play together. He plays wide receiver. So when I looked out there and I looked to my right, I'm saying, ref, I'm on the ball. And then my older brother's out there saying I'm, he's off the ball right behind me. It's just like we were in the backyard all over again. And it was a, a wow. dream come true. And if I'm not mistaken, your first game at Brigham Young was BYU-Utah. Correct. Which, you know, for people outside the state of Utah, they might not know. No, but that's this, a little bit of a game, isn't it? So 100%. What, what was that like, your first game to play Utah? <laughs> it, it was surreal, and especially for our family, my older brother, coming from the University of Utah, playing at BYU now, like on the other side of the Holy War, which uh, he's won three times. So and then so is the, the, the moments and the week leading up to it are just like so much uh excitement and joy like oh it's finally it's finally here we got to play them at home and then to win it and to be there with my brother he scored he scored a huge touchdown at halftime we ended up winning the game and it was just they ended up rushing the field that man it was it was football heaven that was the one of like the things you dream about being a part of college football all right so puka let's fast forward now to preparing for the draft because i've read a couple of things now since you've started and and since you made the Rams and all that, that people are saying, Hey, I knew he could do this. He was ready to do this. And yet you had, you had a handful of big games at Brigham Young, but it wasn't like your first team, all American, anything like that. So tell me what happened in the lead up to the draft and do you have any idea where you were going to go and what did you try to get across to teams before the draft this past April? Um, shoot, I yeah, definitely didn't know where I was going to go in the draft. Uh, just trying to make sure I, uh, I was available to any team that was going to call me. And I guess the when going through the combine and I, I, I ended up getting hurt at the senior bowl, but in those interviews and during that process of, um, trying to present myself to these teams at uh, versatility and uh, competitive. I I'm the, I've been the little brother in my family um, for a long time. So the ability to compete and always want to be better than the guy that's right in front of me, as much as I might love him and my brothers, uh, they, they competed and we competed against each other. And then we would go home and we'd eat dinner at the same table and love each other. So I think that that encompasses the game of football, um, especially in, in the locker room of being able to compete against these guys um, to the maximum level, but then also have the the camaraderie and the, the brotherhood that is involved in the game of football. What do you remember about talking to the Rams, Les Snead, Sean McVay, anybody with the Rams before the draft? And were you surprised when they picked you? Um, I was surprised. So I had uh, one, uh, only one visit. I didn't actually, I don't know if I talked to them during the senior bowl or during the, uh, the combine. I didn't, I didn't have much contact with the Rams during those times, 
Um, but they, they came out and had an interview and we went out to uh, Firehouse Subs, a little sandwich spot down there in Provo. And we we sat kind of just talked football and we had a good time. We watched actually. Who, who were you? Who were you with? Um, I believe Andy Sugarman was uh, the the gentleman who came out and did the okay. the interviewing. And we uh, we watched the Boise State game clip for clip, not even my highlight plays. Like and I just remember we I talked through every play. Like I, I knew that I felt like being in the, the offense for two years and kind of being a leader on the team, especially named a captain that that my last year there, like. I, I knew the offense, so we were trying to just chat through plays, but that was my only contact. So when I got that call from Thousand Oaks, it kind of surprised me. <laughs> wow. So what was it like meeting Sean McVay for the first time, and what was that meeting like? Was it in Thousand Oaks? Did you go down there? Um, Yes, but not till the rookies, not till we had reported so minicamp and the OTA okay. period. So um but it was sweet I, I was just super excited I felt like I, I was blessed <laughs> I did my uh combine training out here in California but down there in Santa Ana so to be in California again it was like okay I kind of know this place but um I just say excitement I was just he had so much energy and I was super excited to be there so I felt like it was just the perfect match <laughs> yeah I, I was gonna say you guys sort of fit each other don't you <laughs> I would say so yeah <laughs> yeah um so you get to the Rams, and I read in Jordan Rodriguez's story about you in The Athletic, which really interested me, is that right away when you got in there, you uh, sort of connected with a few of the coaches. You started meeting with Jake Peets during the OTA periods. Tell me what you did to try to get a little jump on things. Um, Shoot just spending time and asking the right questions. I think that was the biggest thing. Uh, knowing that, I guess this was, this was the only thing I had to do. We were staying at, I hadn't found a spot. I'm staying at a hotel. Not sure if I'm going to make the team and just knowing I got to show up to the facility every day and uh, prove that I, I I belong here. So after, after we're getting done with practice or the rookie workouts and our meetings, just head right to coach Pete's office, like you said, and just, we were sitting down and we were go. it started as the simplest it could be like, Hey, you, you're the Z. Here's the, here's the Y, here's the F, here's the X. Like this is where they all line up. We're going, drawing it up as simple as it could be on the whiteboard, but just kind of and then it just progressed from there when we started kind of doing our walkthroughs and our jog throughs and actually getting live reps and then having coachable moments so um i i really do thank coach pete's and our our staff kj and coach yarbs and the list goes on and on of guys who have been in those rooms to be able to help me and kind of break it down so i could ask the questions to better understand so i could go out there and play full speed so early on you you obviously were you know, dealing with a lot of different coaches and coach Yarbs you talk about is Eric Yarber, the veteran wide receivers coach. So tell me just a little bit about how you tried to just totally digest everything in this playbook, because that is sort of the book on you on opening day. You Matthew Stafford was confident that you knew what you needed to know in the game plan that week to go up to Seattle and for him to rely on you. How, how, how much did you study? Take me into that whole process. Um, Sure. I, I guess it's the game plan that, that definitely coach McVay helped build, but then I, I just 
uh, on my part, I feel like is 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 easy. I'm I'm getting a lot of information, um, definitely from uh, different sources. But I look at the the leaders that I have and the the mentors that I'm uh, I have around me of Matthew Stafford and Cooper Cup, and then even to the guys like Tutu and Van, like guys who have been in this offense and the communication that they have. Like I, I'm in there trying to remember. Uh, I'm getting the call sheets and drawing them out, and in the in the film room asking the questions where we're going over the tape, but. Uh, when the bullets start flying and we're we're going full speed, it's definitely a, a different thought process. So being able to communicate with those guys and they help me a ton. But I, I just I'm always super grateful for those guys because they they communicate at the highest level. And Matthew I, and especially Coop, those guys like they the the level that they communicate and the ability to understand it, they make it so easy. <laughs> so I, I'm super grateful for those guys. Did you have a moment with Matthew Stafford before? the Seattle game, your first, the first game of your career. Did you have a moment with him where he said, dude, you're getting the ball. You you better be ready. I mean, what, what did he say to you, if anything, before that first game? Um, not, Nothing really, I guess. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, when there was no uh, kind of exchange in between us, I guess uh, more after the game, after, kind of after every play, especially when he throws me the ball, I always like, obviously the catch transition and make sure I can get the yards and I'm holding on to the ball, but whatever, cause he's waiting for the next play. He's always kind of outside the huddle. I always kind of look back and see if I give him a quick little thumbs up or he'll look at me and give me a thumbs up or something like, oh, we'll have eye contact and he'll just kind of give out like a, a nod of affirmation or like a nod of acknowledgement. And that's always good enough for me. Or like, as, like, that's always the best feeling of like, hey, if he gives me a thumbs up, I feel really good. But if he just gives me the quick nod of something, okay, I, I, I did good. I did good enough. <laughs> there could be better. Yeah. Um, did anything surprise you about that first day in Seattle? Here you are in the, the, the loudest stadium in all of football. And, you know, you had this incredible game and, and all these catches. Did anything surprise you that day? Um, Yes, <laughs> number number fifty four on the other side does uh, is Bobby is, Wagner. Yeah, it's re- it's really big and he hits hard. The guys hit harder than it looks on TV. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, it's funny. Uh, I guess not that surprised me. The one thing, um, my family number is number twelve. It's uh, I, what I wore in college and in high school. It's kind of just uh, my siblings have all had a, at some point maybe worn the number twelve. So I just I, I remember mentioning it to Coop because I didn't know that the home of the 12 is the Seattle Stadium. And so I remember going to him. I felt I was feeling just super confident, felt really prepared. The people that around me just giving me pop, reaffirming positive energy and stuff like that. I remember saying to Coop, like, hey, they, they don't know that like 12, like that means something to me. Like that means they're cheering for me. Like I, I'm still like in my head, I'm meant to like, I'm number 12, like the home of the 12. Like they're, they're saying like, they want 12 to do good. Like I'm thinking that's me. Obviously Van is number 12 too, but I'm like, they don't know. Like I've been number 12 my whole life. So I just, it felt like I was at home. Like whether, whether they were cheering for us or not, I felt like I was in the right place and they were all cheering for me. <laughs> Puka, I've got to ask you in your, in your wildest dreams, being the 177th pick in this draft, could you have imagined these first two weeks being the way they've been? <laughs> not, not one bit. <laughs> that's that's what uh, makes every moment so sweet. Uh, as much as I have been dreaming to be in this position of playing in the NFL and dreaming of obviously the most success, like everything that's come, and not knowing how it is going to come, and just trying to enjoy every day as it is, um, it makes it that much more sweet. What have you learned about yourself 
in the first, you know, say three or four months as an NFL player. What have you learned about yourself that has been very, very valuable in you doing as well as you have? Um, I think being having my own uh, silent confidence. <laughs> I'm not a big vocal guy. Uh, don't I feel like I don't really say too much. Not uh, very flashy either. Um, but to to have that confidence in yourself that I, I do belong here and the work that I put in uh, will help me stay here and kind of to walk in with that and do and do the things that are necessary to earn that confidence and then kind of just trust. I I trust number nine out there <laughs> so much that I feel like <laughs> I I could catch the ball with my eyes closed because I know that he wouldn't put me in a situation that that wasn't the best for me and he he put putting up his uh, elite ball placement. I, I trust Coop so much that that when he's telling me, Hey, that the, the defender is going to be like this in the coverage or like the lineman might fall this way. So like you, you can go this way. Like I trust those guys um, obviously because they've done it so much, and, but the way they communicate and help me understand like, Hey, this is how it can be done. This is like, and they're showing. So it makes playing the game of football so much, so much fun. <laughs> I think what is cool about your story is that I really think in the NFL so often, Bill Parcells used to say this hall of fame coach, he goes, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you were drafted. I don't care how much money we spent on you. When you get in this room, and he meant the room the first day of training camp. When you get in this room, you're all the same to me. And all I do is go by what I see. I don't do anything else. And I would think, <clears throat> looking at your story, you have to kind of feel that that's how Sean McVay, Les Snead, Eric Yarber, all these coaches and, and the front office is, they go by what they see. And they saw a guy who was doing everything right. And so they gave you a chance. How, how do you feel about that? Uh, I, I feel like you hit it right on, right on the nose right there. I, yeah, I'm blessed to be where I am. I, I'm grateful for the people around me and in this facility for believing in me. Um, and I, I, yeah, I'm blessed. <laughs> Puka Nakua, thanks so much for taking this time and kind of telling America a little bit about who you are. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Nice to meet you. And thank you for having me on. Hey, Puka, all the best to you. Thanks so much. I, it's been great to watch you fun. And uh, like I say, you know, that's what I love about football. It's a meritocracy. You work your ass off. You're good. You're going to play. And that's what this shows. I think it's a really cool story. Yeah, I appreciate that. You have a good one, sir. Good to hear from Puka Nakua. And we'll be back on the podcast right after this. At Delta, we know Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. On the next flight, 8C is Mandy, a foodie. So we offer all types of food options. Because at Delta, everyone flies their own way. Delta, keep climbing. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, Miles, I think one of the interesting things that we've seen in the NFL so far this year, and I'll call this the this section of the podcast, I'm going to call it, we'll never learn, will we, section. 
because at the beginning of this year, we were all convinced that Jonathan Gannon was way in over his head, or in way over his head, I should say. And what have we seen in the first month of the season? Well, uh, we've seen that the Arizona Cardinals have played three games against teams from the NFC East, had leads in the second half of all three, and just really dominated the Dallas Cowboys, who we all thought were the best team in football, coming into that game on Sunday. In the other conference, the Houston Texans, we all thought the Texans were going to be in contention for that first pick in the 2024 NFL Draft. Um, Even though they didn't have their first pick any longer, they traded it to Arizona to move up, obviously, in the draft last year. So these were the two teams we all thought were going to be lousy and probably the worst two teams in football. I did anyway. And what Arizona beats Dallas and what happens uh, in Jacksonville on Sunday, uh, the Houston Texans 37, Jacksonville 17. And you might say it wasn't even that close. So, Miles, I want to spend a minute and just give you my one theory about why sometimes that we really should just completely understand why at the beginning of the year that we really don't know what we're talking about. And I think it has to do in in each case with two different things, okay? In Houston, I think that D'Amico Ryans came in and did such a good job in erasing every bit of outside noise. You know, when mm-hmm. I talked to C.J. Stroud, the quarterback of the Texans, uh, after the game on Sunday, and he said something really revealing to me when I said, man, nobody saw this coming, and he basically said, listen, why can't we win these games? We come from great college programs. We're used to winning. He's talking about he and Will Anderson uh, coming from Alabama. We come from these programs. I mean, we don't enter any game thinking we can't win. I don't care what the outside world says. Who cares? We came into this game, Jacksonville, top 10 team in the NFL probably, but we said, we can beat these guys. And, And I think... I don't even just mean out of the mouths of babes. I mean that D'Amico Ryans has done a really good job in convincing these guys we are the sum of our parts. And C.J. Stroud, Will Anderson, what happened with both those guys? They were voted captains, rookies, in their first training camp. In the middle of late in training camp, they voted for captains, Who won? Will Anderson, one of the defensive captains, and obviously C.J. Stroud. That's one thing. But the second thing in Arizona, I don't think you can overlook or overestimate how important Joshua Dobbs has been. And I know everybody will laugh at that and say, oh, you know, Josh Dobbs, forget it. He's just a guy, journeyman guy. Seven years in the NFL, that was his first win. But just watch the last couple of weeks, particularly, how Josh Dobbs has played. He looks like he belongs 
to the point. I found myself saying, I know these guys say they're all in on Kyler Murray, and I know that Kyler Murray's going to come back, but, but Miles, I just had a feeling in the second half of this game that Jonathan Gannon and the trainers are going to say to Kyler Murray, hey, take your time coming back. You know, make sure you're fully healthy before you come back. So I don't know. The teams we thought were bad are not bad. And those are just a couple of reasons why uh, I think um, both of those teams are a lot better than we thought they were. You know, what? what's interesting to me, Peter, I, I'm thinking about Jonathan Gannon. And I'm reminded of Nick Sirianni and the thing that Nick Sirianni said in his first year about the flower and like, it was at a press conference, I think, and everybody's kind of like, what in the world are you talking about? And he's talking about flowers then needing to bloom or whatever it was, and I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but it kind of reminds me of yeah. what Jonathan Gannon said in that little clip of the <laughs> Cardinals flight plan show where he's like, did you drive or did you ride the bus? And do you have fire in your belly? And yeah. he's like, you look around in the public, you're like, what in the world are you talking about? But... Cardinals had some fire in their belly on Sunday, man. I'll tell you that. You take it to the Dallas Cowboys as they did, you know, that that says something. So, yeah, the the Cardinals have blown some leads, but they've also been in every game. They're not a pushover. They're not going to roll over for them. So they are at least starting to build the foundation of something with Jonathan Gannon, and I didn't necessarily expect that. The thing that I'll say about the Texans, though, I give a lot of credit to Bobby Slowick, and I I was nervous – yeah. For what was going to happen with C.J. Stroud when you've got somebody who's a first-time play caller, right, really implementing an offense and trying to train a quarterback kind of for the first time. And, yeah, you know, he's with San Francisco and with Kyle Shanahan. And so far, I haven't really seen many failures, right, when you leave that system and you go somewhere else. But I, still, when you've got a rookie quarterback and a rookie play caller, like that's something where you're like, uh-oh, I don't know. But far and away right now, C.J. Stroud looks like the best rookie quarterback. And part of that is because, well, we didn't see, you know, uh, Anthony Richardson or Bryce Young in week three, fine. But when you're doing the things that C.J. Stroud is doing, when you're commanding the huddle, when you're getting, when you're throwing guys open sometimes, right? When you're hitting the open man, you're not turning the ball over. Those are really, really critical things that a young quarterback can do to help put his team in position to win. So I've been very, very impressed by the plan that they've had for C.J. Stroud into this season. Because, I mean, early on in the preseason, I was kind of like, oh, what are you guys doing? You know, especially that preseason game against the Patriots, it just felt to me like they weren't giving him enough solutions. And now it more seems like, oh, they were just making sure that he was on the field. And now they're really implementing the plan. So they have always had a plan. It's working, and I give that that coaching staff a lot of credit. Can I tell you two things about Josh Dobbs that I really find interesting? I talked to him after his game, after they beat the Cowboys on Sunday, and I said, do you remember the last time we talked? I think it was probably the only time we've ever talked. I talked to him maybe three or four years ago. He had an off-season internship at NASA. And Josh Dobbs, at one point in his life, really wanted to be an astronaut. And he just thought that would be the coolest thing and all that. So here's a guy who's had two career ambitions, to be an NFL quarterback and an astronaut. And I just think that is the coolest thing. But I also want to read you a quote from him and why 
I believe that it's so cool that finally in his seventh NFL season, he finally was the winning quarterback in a game he started. He's been a starting quarterback in his life since he was six years old in Alpharetta, Georgia. And, you know, he, he this is the first NFL start he ever won. So I, I just want to read you this one thing. He goes, I'm proud of my performance, and I'm going to appreciate it a lot. This league, man, it's so crazy. It's a league of opportunity. Across the league, you see guys who've been waiting months, years to play. The only way, though, that you can have a real chance to play and to keep playing is to focus on the moment, live in the moment. And this is a great reward for that. I just, I love guys who get it, who Mm -hmm. understand that maybe life is not always going to be fair. But what are you going to do about it? Sulk or work your rear end off whenever you do get a chance? Kudos, Josh Dobbs. I really appreciate you, and I appreciate what you did Sunday in beating the Dallas Cowboys. Okay. I I want to just say one thing about one thing that that I don't know that we talk very much about. We kind of forget it a day or two after games. I just the one lingering thought in my mind honestly uh, that that I just can't get out of my mind about week three is watching Kirk Cousins at the line of scrimmage as the clock ticked down from 37 seconds to 30 to 28 to 25, hands over his, his, his helmet, over the things, trying to hear, trying to make sure he could hear and not being able to hear and then looking around and kind of nervously. I mean, look, If you watch that, I'd love to know what a behavior expert would say when he watched that tape because it looked an awful lot to me like Kirk Cousins was panicking. That's what it looked like to me. When in reality, if you can't hear, the stadium is so loud. If you can't hear at that point, get your team to the line of scrimmage. You got to have a code word uh, for clocking the ball. Get the team to the line of scrimmage and just clock it. And then it's second and 10 you got 30 seconds left or 28 seconds left. Plenty of time to run mm-hmm. three plays from the six-yard line to get a touchdown. Plenty of time. Yes. But as it was, panic, 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 panic. They run it down to 12, and they still are not confident of what they're going to do. And he throws the ball, it gets tipped, and it's intercepted in the end zone. And that's a fluky thing. I'm not saying it was a terrible play, whatever, but... I'm saying that that told me something about the Vikings, and it's not good. It is not good. How have you not worked on something like that? How is it possible that you waste 25 seconds in a game that you absolutely, totally, unequivocally had to have? and not get the ball off till there's 12 seconds to go and you throw an interception and the game is over. Miles, that was the worst thing I saw. You know, you always see some things that worry you. That was by far the worst thing I saw in week three. Peter, coaches talk all the time about process over results. 
but this was a bad process that led to a bad result, right? If you get that first down there, as they did, you go up to the line and clock it. I don't really understand what it was that they're talking about. Oh, we couldn't hear. Yeah. Like, what, what, what do you need to hear? Do this. Yeah. Like, this is the international yeah. football sign for clock the ball. That you do that and you have three <laughs> shots at taking, uh, I mean, at, at, at getting into the end zone. And you have Justin Jefferson. So I don't, like, I just, what are we doing here? Wait, Miles, 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 I have to just ask you this question. Are you saying that if you're walking along the streets of Budapest or Prague and you go like this, the locals will say, ah, that's the international signal for clocking it. <laughs> if they know football. If, I mean, if all those people in Germany last year understand what country roads is like yeah. John Denver, then they're going to yeah. like, if you they're going to know, know what the see, clocking like, signal is. It, yeah. If we do this, that means clock the stupid ball. I mean, I just, yeah, it, I, I really enjoyed watching Kevin O'Connell last year. I, I thought that he was really good in a lot of different situations. Obviously they had that, you know, huge comeback um, against the Colts, but like, there are things where I'm looking at the Vikings right now. I'm like, what's going on? Like that was one of those situations where I, I just didn't get it. And it really bailed out Brandon Staley because, oh my goodness, what would the discourse be if the Chargers had lost that game after going for it on fourth and one with a fullback dive, and, you know, when you're on the minus 20 something or whatever it was like, I, I understood in part why they did that. Cause if you get the first down, you win the game and yeah, you're trying to be aggressive. You're trying to win and you're up by four and that, that, that they still need a touchdown. It worked out, but I'm sorry when the other team has Justin Jefferson and in some way you're kind of relying on them having a brain fart to lose. Like, I don't know about that process either. So yeah, it was, it was kind of a bad coaching off in the, at the end of that game. And, you know, the Vikings did it worse and they end up 0-3. Let's talk about the New York Jets. But let's talk about them for 47 seconds instead of three minutes because there's really nothing else to say other than I appreciate Robert Sala, the spot he's in. It's September and you have an absolute disaster at quarterback with Zach Wilson, he can't really think that Zach Wilson gives them the best chance to win. And he can't really not go get another quarterback if Wilson struggles one more time this weekend on Sunday night football against Kansas City. And by the way, is there any doubt he's going to struggle Sunday night against Kansas City? Take the floor, Miles Simmons. Uh, Zach Wilson's problem is he just doesn't see it. You know, you can tell with quarterbacks when they're in rhythm. And, you know, we obviously watch a lot of football. But when a quarterback's got a five-step drop, it's okay. He's going back, boom, 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 and, oh, the ball's out. You can really see this a lot of times with Justin Herbert. He, you can tell he processes things extremely quickly. He's going from one read to the next read to the next read. With Zach Wilson, it's like he's moving in quicksand, and his eyes go like, uh, 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 and that can't happen when you're a quarterback. You've got to be able to read it. You've got to be able to process it. If it's not there, then you, you, you throw the ball away or you try to make a play with your legs. Zach Wilson's not doing it. 
I don't know what the Jets are supposed to do at quarterback. I'm sorry. I don't want to watch Matt Ryan or Carson Wentz try to function in an offense. They don't know. I don't think that's going to go very well. So the Jets are stuck. We'll see what they do. But, you know, it's like Tom. But you know, Miles, you can't can't just say you can't just say if he's awful again this week, you can't just say for your locker room, you can't say because they all see it every day. No matter how good this guy is in practice, you can't say we're going to do it. So you say, I don't want to see Matt Ryan and Carson Wentz. Look, I'd rather see the janitor. And, 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 you know, so (laughs) at some point you've got to make a replacement. Okay. And look, maybe he'll shock us all and play well against Patrick Mahomes. I don't think so. I don't think anybody thinks so, but I I think they have got to go out. And as I said, you know, and I've been saying this for two weeks, that the best guy to go get is Gardner Minshew. Well, obviously, there's no way they can get Gardner Minshew now because Minshew could really, he could win the AFC South this year. I'm not saying he will, but I'm saying he could if he had to and if he plays. And I have no idea if, I we don't know how much Anthony Richardson is going to play. Will he be a rock solid guy? You just, you just don't know. So, but anyway, uh, I think they're going to have to go out and get a veteran quarterback to try to just put a band aid on this stuff um, because right now it's just you can't keep putting them out there. Last thing, Miles. So the Chicago Bears. Uh, I think. More I think about this, and I wrote this in my column, I would be surprised if, and look, they, I don't see any other way than even if they salvage a win against Denver on Sunday, I'd find it hard to believe that Matt Eberflus can survive this. Uh, the question I think is, would they totally clean house with you know Eberflus and Ryan Poles going, I kind of don't think so. It's really not the Bears' way. And um, I kind of like, even though it hasn't worked, I kind of like how they were set up for this year coming in. But the fact is, you know, Justin Fields, who was not the pick of Ryan Poles, um, he's he's going to need a major comeback to salvage his career in Chicago this year. But... Do you see any way the Bears turn it around, Miles? Well, no. And like speaking of teams that look like it's December, I mean, that's the Chicago Bears. I mean, that that week last week was something from December in Berea playbook. I mean, with the Cleveland Browns. So I mean, I yeah, I don't I don't know where you can go for the Bears. Here, here's the really big problem, Peter. What do the Bears do well? I, I, I don't know what they do well. They don't really rush the passer well, they don't cover receivers well. They don't really play offense well. Their quarterback runs the ball well, but he's not a consistent passer. So I, the Bears don't do anything well. And when you're in year two of a regime, you 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 want to see something that they do well. What is something that they can build upon? I don't know. That One of the reasons why I was nervous about Bobby Slowick and C.J. Stroud is Luke Getze and Justin Fields. And granted, you know Luke Getze did not draft Justin Fields. He was not there. But that's another one of these examples of first-time play caller. And, yeah, I know that he and um, Justin Fields shared a hug on the field last year or last week, I should say. But, like, there's things that just aren't working. When the quarterback says, oh, the coaching is making me think too much, 
it's not necessarily saying I'm being coached poorly, but there is a clear disconnect between what the coach is saying and how you're implementing it on the field and it's not working for you. And so that's a problem, right? I mean, it's like having a boss that you just don't jive with. It happens. It's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. It's happened to me. I bet it's happened to you before, Peter. Like these are just things that are just happening in the world. So, you know, when it happens on the football field, it becomes a bigger deal. But I don't think that Justin Fields is saying that he's like, um, my coaches are terrible, da, 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 da. But when the coaching is making you think too much, that's a problem as a quarterback. So yeah, the Bears don't really do anything well. I don't really know what they're going to be able to do for the rest of the season, but it certainly looks like they're going to be one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in football in 2023. Oh, I'm wrong. So I guess, you know, there's a bunch of other things going on. I, I, I guess the last thing I just wanted to say this week on the podcast is that, um, and I, I don't mean to be a self promoter, but I, I really wish that if you have a couple of minutes, you go see my column this week, Football in America, Monday, September 25. There's a 2,000 word section in there on a guy named Buddy Tevens. Now, Buddy Tevens was the football coach at Dartmouth. Uh, he died when the bicycle he was riding uh, was hit by a Ford F-150 truck. That happened last March and he died last week. Uh, at, you know, due to the injuries suffered in that crash. And the reason that I want you to, to read that is that I think Buddy Tevens had this attitude that we better take care of our players in this game or in a few years, we won't have a sport anymore. And he stopped practices where during practice, players would tackle other players they had a sort of a robot tackling dummy that they used to teach tackling technique uh, with players. But, you know, I talked to the three-time uh, All-Ivy linebacker uh, for for this team, and, and he said, it's amazing. I was super skeptical about it at the beginning, but you actually become a better tackler when you when you stress technique as much as Buddy and this coaching staff did. And and then there was also what he did for women. Uh, and he hired the first full-time woman, Callie Brownson, in 2018 to be on his staff. Um, and I just, he was very, very bullish on including half of the population in the United States in the labor pool for his team. And so just, if you have a minute, go and read this section. And I think you'll appreciate a guy who should be, whose death should be noted um, with a lot more, I don't want to say his death should be noted with fanfare, but his life should be noted with fanfare a lot more than I believe it has been. Because who's, people will say, well, who cares? He's a coach at Dartmouth. But I think he's going to his legacy will be that he's got a major, major impact on the sport of football in terms of health and safety and in terms of promoting women. So anyway, that's my little promotional deal this week. I wanted you, if you can, if you have a few minutes, to go read 
about the late Buddy Tevens. So, thank you so much for joining us this week, Miles Simmons and I, on the Peter King Podcast. Look forward to seeing you again next week, right here. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.